Do you think cannabis is a medicine that nurses can recommend to patients, or do you think it's an illicit substance with no medical benefits? Let's talk about the evidence-based uses of cannabis right here on episode 229 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello and welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. I am so grateful you're here, whether it's your first time tuning in or you've been hanging out with me here on the airwaves for months or years. In any case, I thank you for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. This podcast, as always, is about you and your nursing and healthcare career, and I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, and beyond. And did you know you can leave a rating and review for the Nurse Keith Show? That's right. Head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show when you rate and review it. And if you let me know you did, I will read your review and thank you personally on air. Meanwhile, if you want to see the show notes for this episode, you can follow along at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 229. Anywho, we are joined by the wonderful Eloise Thiessen of Radical Health. Hey, Eloise, welcome to the Nurse Keith Show. Oh, thanks for having me, Keith. I'm honored. Sure. I'm honored, too, that you would take the time. And we're talking today about cannabis and about nurses and medicine and their intersection with cannabis and this new burgeoning industry and very old medicine that's been around forever and ever and ever. So how important is it for us nurses and healthcare professionals to understand the power of cannabis? That's such a great question, Keith. You know, I think many of us right now as nurses can think of a patient that's using cannabis that may have asked us questions. It seems that cannabis, particularly CBD, is everywhere right now. And many patients are looking for alternatives or something to use in addition to their current regimen and have a lot of questions about cannabis as a medicine. Mm-hmm. It's extremely important right now for nurses and advanced practice nurses, even student nurses, to start understanding cannabis so that they can help their patients answer their questions appropriately and help patients reach success. Okay, well said. Now, what is one of the top myths about cannabis that you tend to have to dispel over and over again when you're speaking with either lay people, the media, or healthcare professionals? What do you feel like you have to keep repeating yourself saying? That there's not enough research. Okay. I hear that all the time. Okay. Yeah. And mm-hmm. what, what do you say in response to the myth that there's not enough research? Well, I told them there's plenty of research. You know, if we look at cannabis as a medicine, we've, you know, we've been studying it for years in terms of its harms. And we've been able to prove over and over again that cannabis is extremely safe. Its safety profile far outperforms other medications like ibuprofen, gabapentin, for example. And then, you know, you'll hear some pushback about, you know, clinical research. There's not enough clinical research. And you can look at the National Academy of Sciences that did put out their health effects of cannabinoids and reviewed many clinical studies and did rate the different 
studies and determined, you know, where we have substantial evidence to support things like using cannabis for chronic pain, using cannabis for an appetite stimulant, reducing nausea and vomiting, looking at whether cannabis has any correlation or causation with psychosis, mental health issues. So we definitely have a lot of research and in especially with chronic pain, I think we've demonstrated that cannabis has the ability to really help patients reduce um, or even eliminate some of their other pharmaceutical medications when treating chronic pain. Right, right. And when did things go south when it comes to cannabis use and the way the public and the media and everyone looks at it here in the United States specifically? What happened and when did it happen? It started, you know, back in the 18th, 1800s, mid 1800s, cannabis was in most pharmacies as, you know, in tincture form, even in, you know, as a pre-roll or what people would call a joint today, you know, hmm. you could get a belladonna cannabis cigarette, so to speak, to use for asthma. Wow. We had tinctures available. I mean, Eli Lilly would produce, you know, cannabis tinctures for things like dysmenorrhea, you know, neurological disorders, Parkinson's, hmm. seizures, epilepsy. And it started to fall out of favor as new medications became available in IV form um, that were much quicker onset and a little bit more standardized, easier to control. And then what happened was more of a political movement where it started, you know, cannabis use when they, they changed the term from cannabis to marijuana was, you know, tied into the Mexican immigration. And it was intended to, you know, make cannabis look bad. And then the 19th. 1937 Tax Act is really where prohibition started. And that's where what was interesting was that the medical community was still supportive and embracing cannabis as a medicine at that time. But the Tax Act came in and made it so difficult for physicians and patients to afford the medicine that it essentially forced it into prohibition. And the American Medical Association did testify and say that they were concerned about this prohibitive tax act and that it would lead to us losing, you know, decades of research. And they were right. So, you know, when I present to healthcare professionals about cannabis, I say, you know, it wasn't the medical community that thought that there was anything wrong with cannabis as a medicine. Mm -hmm. And so for we've lost decades and decades of research. And I think, you know, that's, it's, it's hard to wrap your mind around, you know, yeah. <laughs> for the last 80 years, we've been told that cannabis is, you know, detrimental and it's harmful. And here now we're seeing all these medicinal benefits of it and still limited in our ability to study it because of its schedule one status. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I recall, I think it was the twenties, well, the 1920s, because we're almost <laughs> to 2020, right? In the <laughs> 1920s was prohibition and the roaring twenties and all that stuff happening, you know, prior to the great depression. And there was a film called reefer madness that came out <laughs> in 1920 or 30 something and it showed people psychotic and doing crazy things and right. you know that was part of the i guess like a public relations onslaught against hemp and against uh thc and marijuana and you know mm -hmm. <laughs> extrapolate that out a hundred years later and we're still fighting that good fight but things are changing so mm -hmm. what are the changes that are most Mm, exciting to you that you're noting around the United States? And we'll focus on this country for the moment. Yeah, I would say, you know, the movement 
with nurses right now. The, you know, we have the American Cannabis Nurses Association, which has about 1,250 members in 48 states. Uh And the organization is moving towards uh, credentialing for cannabis as a specialty for nurses. And I think that's exciting because we're recognizing again, you know, we're seeing that our patients are using it. We're hearing the reports of their success. We're seeing them reduce some other pharmaceuticals, improve their quality of life. Um, it's a tool in our toolbox, I think, for the first time in a long time that has produced some pretty dramatic results. And we see people on the this trajectory of of healing that we really haven't seen in the past. So that, for me, gets exciting. And then to have the National Council of State Boards of Nursing issue guidelines that give us, you know, essential principles for nurses, advanced practice nurses and student nurses on how to care for our patients using cannabis. Are you serious? Mm-hmm. That might become as a surprise to certain people listening right now that the NCSBN has actually come out with cannabis treatment guidelines for APRNs. That's that's pretty radical in and of itself, isn't it? It is. I mean, even for student nurses, they want now anybody who's, you know, getting into a nursing program to understand the endocannabinoid system, the risks and benefits of of cannabis, the potential side effects associated with it. They want us to understand our local laws, our state laws and the federal laws. But most importantly, they really highlight that we need to be non-judgmental with anybody who wants to look at cannabis as a medicine um, and provide them with resources and guidance to help them use it, mm. whether we think, no matter what we think about it, right? Right. Of course. And there might be someone out there right now listening, saying, what the heck is the endocannabinoid system? So I understand what it is for the most part, but in simple terms or relatively concise, can you tell mm-hmm. us what the endocannabinoid system is? Yeah, it's it's a complex system. So, you know, high level overview is that it's a regulatory system. It's a group of receptors that were discovered in the early 1990s that when stimulated um, through things like phytocannabinoids from the plant, from um, synthetic cannabinoids made by a pharmaceutical company, or what we call endogenous cannabinoids, molecules we can actually create on demand within ourselves, stimulate these receptors and help to produce homeostasis. So it really balances things like our mood, our appetite, our sleep, our pain perception, and our memory. And the research is starting to demonstrate that a dysfunction or a dysregulation of our endocannabinoid system may be behind some other disease states that we really haven't been able to find a a source for, like fibromyalgia, migraines, irritable bowel, other autoimmune inflammatory diseases. Uh, Because the receptors, the endocannabinoid receptors, CB1 and CB2, are now thought to be the most abundant cell receptor types out of all receptors in our body, we're really realizing what an important regulatory system it is. Well, so basically you're saying that there's an endogenous cannabinoid system within our body that helps regulate and help us maintain or get to homeostasis and that those compounds are very similar to the cannabinoids you find in the plant medicine. Correct. Right. That's fascinating. And a lot of people are are new to this notion of the endocannabinoid system. And mm-hmm. I know it's becoming more popular because CBD is everywhere. I mean, you can even <laughs> find it in Whole Foods and in CVS now, which yeah. is fascinating. And yeah. I've used CBD myself. And, you know, 
I, I hear all sorts of people talking about CBD. However, I heard something the other day, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, please, because you're the absolute expert, that the FDA has come out saying that putting CBD in beverages or foodstuffs is still against the law, even though Mm -hmm. you can buy CBD-infused chocolate, CBD-infused drinks, so many ingestible products that have CBD in them. So is that true that the FDA is still frowning upon that in terms of consumable products? Yes, that is accurate. And it's very confusing because Mm -hmm. what happened in late 2018 was the farm bill was passed and the farm bill essentially descheduled hemp. And, you know, within hemp, you can find the molecule CBD. So even though it descheduled hemp, the FDA came in and said, well, CBD is still considered a schedule one drug. Oh boy. Okay. So that's (laughs) very confusing. Right. <laughs> if if they deregulated hemp, and there's a whole other political and socioeconomic conversation around hemp, because mm-hmm. we used to make all our paper and lots of our clothing from hemp, and then it got mm-hmm. turned into this vilified thing, and then the cotton industry exploded, and it was probably the cotton interests that that put hemp, you know, behind bars anyway. But that's right. a whole other conversation. We're focusing here on cannabis and THC and CBD and the medicinal properties therein. So. I know that one of the myths around THC and marijuana and cannabis is one, that it's a gateway drug. So that's Mm -hmm. one thing. Mm -hmm. And the other is this whole idea of, um, you actually introduced me to this term, the devil's lettuce. Mm -hmm. So the devil wants us to eat salads made of marijuana, I guess. I guess that's (laughs) what they're trying to say. I don't know what kind of dressing they put on it. Probably CBD infused (laughs) olive oil. I don't know. Um, Be creative. (laughs) Be creative with your salads. But how about this whole gateway drug myth? And then I want to talk a little bit about adolescents and their developing brains and THC. Yeah, I think, you know, we can, well, at least, you know, I was raised in the 80s, so I can think back on some of the commercials that would come out and say, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs, you Mm -hmm. know, specifically talking about THC and, you know, growing up sort of in the D.A.R.E. era and and, um, being told that, you know, if you you try, you know, marijuana, then you're going to lead to harder drugs, heroin Uh and and methamphetamine. And I, I believe that if you look at a lot of the studies that have been done to try to demonstrate that particularly THC is a gateway drug, they did not control variables. So they often those participants, those study participants were also, you know, of low socioeconomic status, they may have been smoking cigarettes, they may have been drinking, you know, there's all of mm. these um, variables in there that they say, you know, when they actually did a study, I think, um, I don't have it in front of me, but they did quite, did look at a adolescence in terms of, you know, what was the thing that they tried first? And it was either cigarettes or alcohol. It wasn't cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people that will report, you know, well, cannabis is, and marijuana has been linked to a gateway drug because maybe, you know, kids tried that first, but then they go back and their dealer then, gives them, you know, we'll try this and I'll give you a free sample of some, some meth or some cocaine or some heroin. Right. And unfortunately, you know, that is what a lot of people continue to believe for, for decades. And I believe what we're seeing now is cannabis is actually what people refer to as an exit drug. 
Um, it's helping them get off their pharmaceuticals, reducing their pharmaceutical mm-hmm. intake. Um, right. Exactly. I know a nurse practitioner who works to a large extent with people with addiction issues and other comorbidities, of course, because they usually go hand in hand, right? And mm -hmm. what she and her colleagues are involved in is weaning people off of these massive doses of narcotics. And Mm -hmm. they're putting them on Narcan, not Narcan, Suboxone and, you know, Mm -hmm. all the other medications that are used for detoxing people that are in many ways better than methadone. It all depends on the situation, of course, and I'm no expert. And they're also... They're writing out the applications for a medical cannabis card here in New Mexico because Mm. that gives them another way to control their nerve pain, their musculoskeletal Mm. pain, their arthritis, their PTSD, and all that stuff. So Mm -hmm. as they're coming down off of really high levels of narcotics in many cases, and they're on buprenorphine or whatever it happens to be to help them do that process. They're actually ramping up their use of THC to help control some of the symptoms. And it actually helps in that detox uh, decreasing Mm -hmm. process. So are you seeing that as well in other practices around the country? Well, it depends. I think, you know, in my practice, you know, I work with patients all day, every day who are looking to use cannabis um, as a treatment modality, either in conjunction with other pharmaceuticals or again to to replace them. And, you know, what happens a lot of times is patients may be faced with reduction in their opioids because of the changes in the Medicare laws. Um, because of the opioid crisis, a lot of pain management doctors are starting to decrease their, you know, daily dose of opioids. Unfortunately, they're not offered much other solutions, right? Mm -hmm. So here they are having to decrease their opioid intake, which causes, you know, withdrawals, which if you've ever had to go through an opioid withdrawal, they're awful. Um, And what patients want more than anything is to stop that pain. And Mm -hmm. so, of course, the solution is more opioids. So they're sort of stuck in this like vicious cycle is how I see it. And here in California, believe it or not, we have pain management physicians that say if you test positive for THC, we will no longer treat you and no longer refill your opioid prescriptions. That happens here as well in certain practices. Hmm. Yeah. And so they're really left with no choices, I think, you know, to be successful at least. And I don't know based on what evidence these practitioners feel that they need to give patients, where patients have to be given an ultimatum and have to make a choice, why they can't have both. Because the research does demonstrate that you know, opioids, when used with cannabis, there is a synergistic effect and patients will naturally start reducing their opioid intake mm-hmm. um, or have better pain control at lower doses with opioids when they use cannabinoids in conjunction with it. Mm. So, so again, I don't know what research they're pointing to or what their concerns or fears are around patients utilizing both. But yes, I do see them having success when they have a supportive uh, care team. Right. I'm seeing that too. And here in New Mexico and Santa Fe, for instance, we have a pain clinic in the local hospital. And when you go to that pain clinic, it shouldn't be called a pain clinic anymore because all they do is interventional radiology. You know, they'll do, they'll do, (laughs) you know, a steroid injection, you know, for disc pain or for, you know, cervical neck issues, you know, but they will not fill out applications for medical marijuana, even though it's mm. it's completely legal here and we have a really robust therapeutic medical marijuana system run by the Department of Health of the state of New Mexico. But this pain clinic 
doesn't do that. They don't prescribe anything, no narcotics, no tramadol, nothing. And they won't even prescribe NSAIDs. All they do is interventional radiology. So Mm. I, you know, when I see pain, quote unquote, pain clinics like that, I think what the heck is going on here? You know, the, the tide has shifted so much that they won't do anything other Mm -hmm. than stick needles in people for temporary relief generally. And that, that just boils my blood. So (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure it bothers you too. And Mm -hmm. uh, can we back up one second? Um, Mm -hmm. We were talking about the gateway drug thing, and I just want to make sure we get this piece in. So before we go forward with this whole pain management thing too, is there research out there around the teenage brain? Because I did mention we were going to talk about that and the use Mm -hmm. of THC, because I used quite a bit of THC as a teenager. (laughs) <laughs> and my mm-hmm. brain, I think my brain's okay, but um, <laughs> um, you can tell me. But is there any research showing that the use in teenagers when their brains are still developing is an issue? Yeah. And I think that there's conflicting research out there again. Okay. You know, we have um, the famous Duke study, which said, you know, if you, you know, use cannabis in adolescence, it causes a lowering of the IQ. Hmm. And no wonder my know, IQ is so low. Oh my God. So low. Okay. <laughs> is your IQ really low? No, it's not. Okay. Okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> I think it's decent. I think it's normal. I think it's average. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, maybe I'd be Um, a genius right now, but who knows? Who knows, right? It's okay. Um, Water under the bridge. There's, um, you know, that famous Duke study, the actual author, one of the authors of that study then went on to do a different study Mm. um, with some of the same researchers and concluded that, you know, when adolescents use cannabis, even when it reaches the point of dependence, that there was no change in, in their IQ. They didn't have any, you know, deficits. So you could look, you, you know, there in ways people can cherry pick their research, you know, and I guess sure. you could say the same thing about me being quote unquote pro cannabis at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try not to be biased in, in there are studies, there was a study that came out of UCLA that was done with the University of Michigan. And it looked at adolescents who were twins. Hmm. And they looked at them when they were around the age of like eight or nine, and when they had no, you know, previous exposure to cannabis use. And then again, when they were in their teens, I think it was like 17 to 20. And, you know, they looked at one twin who used it and one twin who, who did not. And again, they couldn't find any changes in their, their cognition or their IQ. Wow. And, okay. you know, I, I do think though, and we have seen where, where again, we're, we're looking at high consumption, right? Yeah. And, I do think we may see research that comes out when people do use high potency concentrations of THC every day, all day. Uh I do think we'll see some detrimental effects, but we haven't done a good job of controlling for other variables. Again, alcohol use, tobacco use, other drug use, socioeconomic status, diet, exercise, you know, all of those influences also need to be taken into consideration. But with legalization in some of these states, you know, we may start to see some research that does demonstrate, you know, we really need to limit their use, their exposure, their dosages, right. etc. It's still science that is developing, of course, and science is always moving on and developing more and building on previous research. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next 10, 20, 30 years um, for mm-hmm. wh- however much of that you and I are around for. You're much younger yeah. than me, so you'll see a lot more of it than me. 
But I just I just wanted to also mention that you are a board certified adult geriatric nurse practitioner. You've been working in nursing for over 20 years. You worked 14 years in oncology at John Muir, and you've had a cannabis practice for about five years, and you've treated over 5,000 patients using cannabis. So you might have been the first healthcare practitioner to bring a clinical dosing regimen to the cannabis space. So there's a lot of knowledge and data that you carry along with the other people at Radical Health, and that is R-A-D-I-C-L-E, RadicalHealth.com. So when we come back for the break, I want to talk more about your history, and I want to talk about Radical Health and all of the people, the wonderful people you're working with there, and also your wider provider network, and some of the other myths and things that we would like to expose in terms of nurses who are interested in cannabidiols and THC and CBD and everything related to this this burgeoning science. Does that sound okay? Sounds great. All right. So we will be right back for part two of the Nurse Keith Show, episode 229. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment. Please consider becoming a patron of the Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much that they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. When you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty nifty premiums and gifts directly from yours truly. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith to read all about it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Also, please consider signing up for my newsletter at nursekeith.com so that you can receive my bi-weekly message just for you. Finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, even if they do one session, you'll receive credit for one hour of coaching with me. And there's no expiration date on that credit. And you can keep it in your back pocket until you need it most. Remember that you can refer as many people as you like and continue to earn those coaching credits over time. What a deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's topic. All right, and we're back. Thanks for hanging out here on episode 229 of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember that show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 229. There will be lots of links there for you to Eloise Thiessen's organization, Radical Health, and many other things that you're going to want to check out. So please visit the show notes and visit Radical Health and their Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc., all of their social media presence. So, Eloise, thanks for hanging out here for the second half. Yeah, of course. I just feel like we're just getting started. We are just getting started. So, <laughs> let's talk about this idea that people feel like THC is recreational only and uh-huh. CBD is the only thing that's therapeutic. And among nurses, you've pointed out to me in previous conversation that that myth or that viewpoint holds sway among a lot of nurses right now. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Of course. I think, you know, it kind of ties into what we were talking about before the break, you know, where most of the research that we've done up to this point has been on THC and looking at its harms 
Um, many of us can, you know, recall maybe somebody we went to school with or a family member that certainly overconsumed and did have what we thought were detrimental effects from, you know, chronic THC use. So sure. I think it's easy for us to associate THC as, you know, being bad or recreational. Mm-hmm. But again, if you look at the research on THC as a medicine, it has shown a lot of promise in things like pain, inflammation, anxiety, depression, sleep, post-traumatic stress. And what has happened for um, a lot of people is that they tend to overconsume THC, which can lead to adverse effects much quicker than it would if you were consuming CBD or cannabidiol. Mm-hmm. Um, Back in 1991, we did look at THC as an anti-inflammatory and compared it to both aspirin and hydrocortisone and found it was 20 times more powerful than aspirin as an anti-inflammatory and two times more powerful than hydrocortisone. Wow. So, you know, if you look at the studies for cannabidiol, you know, most of the time you're needing 75 milligrams a day or more to achieve any sort of anti-inflammatory effect. And that gets very cost prohibitive for most patients. So THC can really improve patients' outcomes in very, very low dosages that don't cause these adverse effects that people may have experienced in the in the past. So to say that it's recreational, one, I think, you know, gives a negative connotation to recreation. I mean, we're encouraged to go out and find recreation and hobbies and have fun. And, and so why do we associate, you know, having a little bit of THC you know, as recreational is a bad thing. Mm. That doesn't make any sense to me. Great point. Great point. I mean, when you think about recreation, like July 4th is coming up soon, right after we record this podcast, this will come out after July 4th. But July 4th comes along. What do people do on July 4th? They drink beer, they drink wine, they make gin and tonics, and that's recreational drinking, right? I mean, most drinking is, I mean, alcohol drinking is recreational in, by nature, that's mm-hmm. what we that's why we drink alcohol. It's generally recreational to loosen up, right? And mm-hmm. have some fun and laugh and dance or whatever it is you do. And it's very interesting to me that as nurses, we can say, you know, we can have a colleague who drinks enormous amounts of alcohol every night, right? Mm-hmm. They might be a binge alcoholic or maybe they're a very functioning, high functioning alcoholic and maybe they have five, six, seven drinks a night, right? And mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. maybe more on the weekend when they're not working or whenever their weekend happens to be. And we don't test those colleagues for for ethanol in their system right? Mm -hmm. We don't test for alcohol unless we actually think that they came to work impaired, right? Mm -hmm. So, and we know we can wake up in the morning if we've drank a lot and it's still in our system when we go to work. And if you have just a little bit of THC and hangs out in your fat cells forever, right? For Mm -hmm. weeks and weeks Mm -hmm. and weeks and weeks. So we can have one little bit of THC and lose our job, but we can drink like crazy fish the rest Mm -hmm. of the time. And there's no repercussions whatsoever in terms of our job unless we happen to come to work inebriated. So I I just kind of bang my head against this particular wall a lot. And I'll I'll just mention to you a quick story that I had a friend who was a, a physician assistant and she had been honorably discharged from the army for PTSD, having been sexually assaulted, et cetera, et cetera. And she was living here in New Mexico using THC through the medical marijuana program through the Department of Health. 
when she was hired by a local hospital in Albuquerque, they drug tested her after she'd been working a few weeks and fired her because she came up positive for THC. She sued Mm -hmm. in court here, state court, and lost. And the hospital prevailed. And their point was that, yes, THC is legal if you have a medical marijuana card like this healthcare provider, but healthcare providers cannot use medical marijuana even if they need it. So, (laughs) and this case uh, (laughs) has set a certain precedent legally now. Mm -hmm. And that's very sad to me because, you know, burnout, depression, PTSD are very common in nursing. And if Mm -hmm. someone wants to have a little bit of THC to help them sleep at night so they can get up in tomorrow and do another 14 hour day, I don't see any harm in that. Of course, if they're lighting up in the bathroom at work, that's one thing. (laughs) Or if they're vaping in their car on their way to their next hospice patient, that's an issue. Um, but that again, that goes back to the out the functioning alcoholic, and then yeah. the nurse with PTSD who wants to have like a tiny bit of THC before bed. So right. this that's another uh, wall I bang my head against, <laughs> and I guess you do too. <laughs> yeah, it's such a double standard. I mean, oh you gosh. know, when I had my injury, uh, you know, I was prescribed you know eight pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. and all of those I was able to take and still continue to do my job. You know, many of them being opioids and you know, benzodiazepines and muscle relaxants, Mm -hmm. you know, and because those typically don't stay in our bloodstream as long as THC, you know, you can get tested and then you don't show positive. So the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, when they issued their guidelines, they did state that they, they want state nurse, you know, boards of nursing to adopt a policy that they do not test nurses anymore for THC. Wow. Um, Are you kidding me? No, you know, it's that their recommendation is that you, you do an impairment test, you know, are they fit for duty? That's what you should be testing them for, not for THC, because the metabolite, like you said, stays in your system for so long. It's not an indication of impairment. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it it hangs out in the fat cells, right? Correct. And depending on your use, like you said, could be weeks, sometimes months before it cleans out of your system. And I, I get so angry because I think, you know, we back people into a corner and don't give them choices, you know, and we, we, we make, you know, comments about, well, you know, THC gets you high and, and, you know, like euphoria is a bad thing, mm-hmm. you know, oh, and, it's terrible. you know, we're so afraid of euphoria, <laughs> yeah. you know, but yet we can drink or we can, you know, take benzodiazepines and things like that to alter right. our mood. So I think it's ignorance at this point. I think it's also fear. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as it remains a Schedule One drug, we are going to be um, butting up against federal law at yes. the state level. Lots of fear out there. And then there's the whole issue of, okay, you're a Vietnam vet, you have a medical marijuana card in New Mexico, and you're traveling to another state where there isn't the ability mm-hmm. to just walk into a dispensary and buy marijuana, like in Massachusetts or California or uh, Nevada, for instance. And mm-hmm. do you travel with your stuff or then do you have to buy it on the black market because you you don't think you should fly with it? I mean, mm-hmm. it goes on and on and on. I mean, you mm-hmm. can extrapolate this out to all sorts of scenarios. And, you know, my friend, the PA, lost her job, lost her career, mm-hmm. and she is a Gulf War battle veteran with PTSD 
who was mm-hmm. also sexually assaulted by men in the military. So she served her country extremely well, and she is a very gifted and talented and super intelligent healthcare provider who can no longer see patients. So yeah. these stories, that's not the only story that happens mm-hmm. to be one that's close to my heart because it's someone I know. But right. we can assume that these stories are happening everywhere. And mm-hmm you must crawl out of your skin sometimes when you're trying to convince people about the actual research that's out there, like the real data. Mm-hmm. And I, I know do. you're one of the foremost, <laughs> you're one of the foremost experts in the country on this issue. Mm-hmm. I am, you know, and it was accidental. I just happened <laughs> to be a patient who mm-hmm. was so completely disenchanted with the medical system and mm. so frustrated with the management of my care. And when I found that cannabis was able to, you know, treat the majority of my symptoms and allow me to get off the pharmaceuticals, it gave me my life back. Mm. You know, my joke is that, you know, cannabis made me a productive member of society. You know, the pharmaceuticals made me unproductive, right. you know, lost my job, became disabled. I started relying on, you know, on the system to support me. And now I'm, I'm self-supporting again. And so right. people don't get it. I think in some ways until they have that experience, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the other issue that comes up to me around, you know, being in the system or out of the system, like you just mentioned, you were in the medical system getting treated in that particular way. And then you found a new way. Right. So mm-hmm. one of the things that bothers me socioeconomically, when we talk about privilege Let's just say in the United States, we'll just focus Mm -hmm. here still. So because health insurance companies won't even touch CBD or THC, it Mm -hmm. tends, you know, even if you can get a medical marijuana card, which can cost you money if you have to pay a specialty provider to, to certify you for medical marijuana card, you still have to pay out of pocket for your medicine. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you were on opiates or benzos or what have you, You can have most of it covered by your health insurance, even though it impairs you so much more and actually Mm -hmm. can lead to very severe addiction, as you and I know is a huge issue in this country and around the world. So Mm -hmm. that's another that's another thing that I just I just scratch my head over. And (laughs) how many decades is it going to be before insurance companies get behind this form of medicine? And I'm using the word medicines on purpose here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 20 That's years, a, 50 years, 100 years? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I have a colleague and, um, you know, who's also in the industry, cannabis industry nurse and her background's insurance. And she's getting in front of the insurance underwriters this weekend in California. Excellent. And, you know, she's really pushing, you know, she's got this thing that she calls the weed copay, hmm. um, where she demonstrates, you know, here's the pharmaceuticals that patients are on and, and their copays. And here's what a cannabis regimen might look like to replace those pharmaceuticals. And here's the cost difference, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to get them to hopefully start thinking and discussing about allowing for maybe CBD, uh, mm-hmm. a CBD allowance, for example, that's a start. Uh, so That's a start. We and, have to start somewhere. Yeah, we often see with the, in the healthcare health insurance world, and that's a whole other conversation, of course. But we <laughs> often see that Medicare takes the first step, and then everyone else follows. Mm-hmm. So ugh, we're, we're it's definitely a heavy lift. Um, yeah. But as we begin to wind down our conversation, and I would actually love to chat with you for hours more, and we'll have you back. You know, down the road, we'll 
when there's more research or something new happening, we'll have you back on the show. But I know you're the president elect of the American Cannabis Nurses Association, the ACNA for 2019. You're going to serve as president through 2022. I know that there's a Canadian Cannabis Nurses Association and Israeli Cannabis Nurses Association and Australia is in the works and an international association or coalition is kind of, you said, might be coming to fruition at some point. So mm-hmm. what are you seeing in terms of this this burgeoning growth of nurses coming together in a professional organizations in order to further the research and further the conversation? What what makes you feel empowered and emboldened by this particular development? Well, you know, I think nurses clearly were were boots on the ground. We're the ones having the conversations with the patients. Mm-hmm. Patients are more likely to discuss, you know, critical, you know, private things with us than they would their physician. So we really do have such a great connection with our patients and we outnumber physicians five to one. And I, what gets me excited is, is just our work, you know, just our numbers, our strength in numbers and this, this movement right now for nurses to become educated and feel empowered and to go out there in their communities and start educating, you know, we have to educate the the industry, the cannabis industry, we have mm-hmm. to educate the consumer and we have to educate healthcare professionals and the media. And, I'll point out the, the media too. <laughs> the media. Yeah, thank you. Good luck. <laughs> You know, so we, you know, we, those are, that's all within our wheelhouse. You know, we have to advocate and educate. Um, and that's what we're good at. It's what we love to do. And we are the most trusted profession in mm-hmm. 17 years in a row. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that the movement and the change in the healthcare uh, industry with cannabis would come from nurses. Excellent. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. And that's what I know, but I wanted to hear it straight from you, (laughs) the the (laughs) national expert. So great. So these organizations exist. And is there, is there movement towards an international consortium of some kind in terms of nurses and healthcare professionals? Or is that a long way off? Do you think? I think it's a couple years away. You know, it's, it's so funny because everybody goes, oh, I love what you do. I want to do what you do. It must be so great. And I said, look, don't think just because, you know, cannabis is great and we do see great results. But remember, everything that I do is considered illegal. So, <laughs> oh you know, I have, you know, I can't yeah. get bank accounts. I can't even for the, you know, American Cannabis Nurses Association. It's like getting a bank account is like pulling teeth, mm-hmm. you know, it's so things don't aren't as easy as they are in the traditional healthcare care world. So mm-hmm. um, everything takes so much longer, I think, right. really. That, yeah, I can, I can hear that. I see it. And I know it from personal experience from watching all of this happening over the years. So let's talk now for the last few minutes about radical health. And it is R-A-D-I-C-L-E.com, right? Yeah. Can I back up one second? Yes, I, did, ma'am. Um, yeah. I think it would be important for me to say that the ACNA is putting on a conference in December, December 4th through 6, 2019 in New Orleans. Mm. Um, it is for nurses and we'll have anywhere between 12 to 15 continuing education credits. We'll oh, have boy. several tracks for the nurse and the advanced practice nurse. Mm. And Kathleen Russell, who is the lawyer for the NCSBN, who helped write the guidelines on medical cannabis 
for the NCSBN will be speaking there. So it's going to be a great conference for people, whether they're new to it or a little bit experienced, we'll have a little bit of something for everybody. Great. Okay. Thank you. We will put that in the show notes with a link to the ACNA website and also to the conference. Okay. So people can register right at nursekeith.com. Okay. So in terms of radical health, I know that you treat patients yourself through radical mm-hmm. health. I think a lot of geriatric patients, from what I understand, because you're an adult geriatric nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. And I know you also have developed curricula for nurses mm-hmm. and you've applied for endorsement with the American Holistic Nurse Association, which their 2020 conference is actually here in New Mexico next year Ooh. in Albuquerque. So maybe I can cajole you to come and we can go out to dinner. So, <laughs> and I'd love to meet you and your husband and the folks at Radical. So anyway, just saying that. So give us the rundown on Radical Health's mission and what you actually do boots on the ground from day to day and week to week. Yeah. So I actually have my clinic, which is separate from Radical Health. My clinic is physician owned with myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I see patients who, you know, go, I do a thorough health history. We, we talk about their goals of care, um, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and, and then look at a cannabis regimen to try to meet their goals. Okay. Uh, Radical Health is really a company that is trying to return healthcare to healthcare practitioners, cannabis healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want to educate the community, we want to educate the industry, we want to educate healthcare professionals, and start providing some standardized language. Um, provide, you know, confidence to clinicians who want to talk about cannabis, confidence to industry personnel who are, you know, usually the first point of contact for our patients, um, confidence to the consumer who wants to start exploring cannabis as a medicine. Um, so we designed a curriculum. It was originally specific for nurses, but most healthcare practitioners would benefit from it. It's four hours of self-paced curriculum. And we go over a lot of the essential principles that the NCSBN guidelines developed, it just happened to be synergistic. It wasn't intentional. Okay. Um, so we do the endocannabinoid system, routes of administration, the different cannabinoids and terpenes, uh, clinical implications, pharmacology. We also look at geriatrics and chronic pain. Wow. Excellent. And I'm sure you cover cancer and chemotherapy and symptom management and that sort of thing too. Well, we have modules that are in the works. Uh-huh. We are building a what we're calling a radical community. Um, where we'll have additional modules for you know that people can buy separately, or if you sign up for the four-hour curriculum, you do get access for a year. So anytime we add anything new to it, um, you automatically get that content within that year. We also do a five-week webinar, which we limit to about ten nurses or healthcare professionals, and it's uh-huh. five weeks, hour and a half each week. And we really dive into that content and learn how to apply it to practice. And, and that's CEUs it, related to that as well, right? Correct. Yeah, mm-hmm. great. Wonderful. And are you doing any CEUs through the AHNA or is this through other beans? Um, no, I'm a continuing education provider through the Board of Registered Nursing in California. Great. The AHNA hopefully will endorse our content, but they won't be providing the CEUs. Okay. Yeah, I would assume they would endorse. I mean, it's such a it's a no brainer. Um, (laughs) my former podcast co-host and friend, Elizabeth Scala is now the president of the AHNA. So I'm sure she's behind it. I would hope. And I, the AHNA is doing great work in the world. And this seems like a very synergistic 
collaboration that could happen between the AHNA and the ACNA. Mm -hmm. So I'm 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 hopeful to see more collaboration happening across the board between nurses and healthcare professionals. Yes, so um, what is this notion of specialty designation around cannabis too? What can you tell us about that? Uh, you know, the time we've already approached ANA mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, uh, getting credentialing for nurses and, and we have several years. Their initial response to us was there's not enough evidence-based research. So, oh, God. You know, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, <sighs> so ACNA is working hard to okay. um, start providing some of that, and Good. you know we have some pretty smart people on our board right now that I think can really help get us there. But you know it's years in the making. Hmm. Well, thank you for doing that good work and fighting the good fight. I mean, this is a very important aspect of healthcare in the 21st century, and you're on the cutting edge. You've been on the cutting edge. You're going to continue to be, and you're kind of leading the charge for us. And I just want to tip my hat to you. I think that's really, it's wonderful, and I really want to support you all however I can. Oh, thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me on the show and of highlighting course. the work. Yeah. Yeah. And as lot. new developments come, I want to have you back on or have you on with colleagues or other colleagues of yours, because we need to continue this conversation because one podcast does not a, a revolution make, right? So mm -hmm. these ongoing conversations are important. And yes, I'm not the mainstream media, but I can mm -hmm. reach a lot of mainstream nurses and healthcare professionals through the, the virtual airwaves. And, mm -hmm. you know, we need, you know, 60 minutes to have you on. We need CNN to have have you on, you know, so mm -hmm. that we need um, Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! to have you on. So, you know, hopefully you can continue to make inroads into the media because the media is, I mean, they can educate the public if we can educate them first. <laughs> right. We need them to bring forward the right information and evidence so that they can tell the public the truth. And mm -hmm. the, the truth is out there, you know, to, to quote a famous science fiction TV show. And you're one of the standard bearers of that truth. And I think we, we need to continue to support people like you doing this really good work. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Strength in numbers. Strength in numbers. That's right. So is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to before we say goodbye? No, I think, you know, we'll just leave it with this and hopefully people will, you know, want more and we can come back and provide them with more. And there's, there's a lot to digest, I think, at yeah. this point. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eloise. You were just amazing. My pleasure. Yeah, thank Keith, you, you too. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to The Nurse Keith Show. Remember that the show notes are at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 229. The Nurse Keith Show is edited and produced by Tim Hollowell and his team at thepodcastinggroup.com. And Mark Cappiespeason is our social media ringmaster. Please keep tuning in again and again as we continue to explore these incredible interviews and conversations that help you elevate your career and your life to wherever you want want to go next. So be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Eloise Thiessen bidding you adieu from Walnut Creek, California. Walnut Creek, California. Okay. Thank you, Eloise. And we will catch you all on the flip side. <laughs>